Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. Last week, the news that the economy added just 266,000 jobs in April, when many economists were expecting closer to a million, has made for a lot of head scratching. Many analysts conclude that businesses are struggling to find enough workers as the economic recovery strengthens. In fact, Republicans say that excessive COVID relief benefits are creating a disincentive for people to come back to work. Democrats say, no, recovery is a long road. If anything, the anemic jobs numbers show that the economy needs an additional boost. So what's going on? Some economists say that to really understand what's happening, you have to look at the data of who has gone back to work and who hasn't, and more importantly, why they haven't. We're very fortunate today to have an eminent economist walk us through what that under the surface story is. Diane Lim is an economist who over the course of a distinguished 30 year career has worked in the federal government, nonprofit and academic sectors. She's a Capitol Hill staffing veteran like me and she writes the Economist Mom blog. She's served as an advisory board member of the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. Diane, welcome and happy Mother's Day. Thanks, Matt. It's good to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. And the Mother's Day theme is actually kind of a sneakily perfect lead in mm -hmm. to where I think we're going with a story that we're going to try and unearth here of what's going on with the economy, because it has something to do with mothers. Maybe we can start by going back to about a year ago in that April, May timeframe, 2020, sort of the, the low point in the pandemic-induced recession, at least from a job standpoint. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us what did that look like at that point a year ago? Who was out of work? Who was suffering the most demographically? All right. Well, in the spring of 2020, you know, if you think back to when things first started shutting down because of the pandemic, it was mid-March that people were told, don't come to the office, right? Uh, stay home for a couple weeks, I think was the feeling back then. And um, that so that started in March. The first um, economic evidence that we started seeing in terms of how much this was turning into an economic recession and not just a public health crisis was with the April. We saw a little bit in March jobs report, but in by the April jobs report, we saw an unbelievably large, you know, historic, unprecedented increase in the unemployment rate. And um, we saw, I mean, we had never seen a stoppage of the labor market like that so suddenly and dramatically. Um, in any previous recession, because, you know, honestly, we've never had an economic recession that was driven, I mean, in modern times, I should say, driven by a public health crisis rather than a systemic economic weakness. So um, who did we see? I mean, everyone suffered massive unemployment, but the people that suffered disproportionately turned out to be women. And um, you could see that in the labor market data because the labor market data show employment status split by some major racial categories and by gender. So they do have that. 
So we could see right away in April that the increase in unemployment and the decrease in the employment to part, um, employment to population ratio or the measure of labor force participation rate, which is how many people are um, either employed or actively looking for work, right? To be measured as in the labor force, you have to be not just you, you, you don't have to be working, but you have to want to work basically to be measured as in the labor force. Um, so that's a smaller measure than population because a lot of people are older and retired. A lot of people are, um, are stay at home. They work at home. Um, and so we saw the big increase in unemployment for women and that was explained by factors that were going on on both the industry side of the economy and the household side of the economy, because the jobs, the industries, the businesses that were shut down the most, that were the most disrupted and halted were the human intensive service industries, right? So we, it wasn't a surprise that we saw unemployment um, you know, go through the roof in terms of leisure hospitality sector. You know, we saw the jobs just disappear on the establishment side of the, of the monthly employment report. We saw the jobs in leisure hospitality just go away, like drop out of the market. Um, we saw jobs in um, human, any human service industry. So personal care industry, you know, gyms, um, tourism, uh, you know, travel, like airline travel. Um, we saw a lot of healthcare jobs go away because discretionary healthcare was shut down. Like you couldn't just go for a routine doctor's appointment. You had to really have an emergency and go to the hospital for that. So um, there was just a lot of the health industry, education, personal care, leisure hospitality, you know, those are the industries that were primarily affected right away. And if you look at who works jobs in those industries, women are the larger share of workers in these human contact intensive jobs. So, yeah. So it sounds like what you're describing is sort of two effects, sort of a demand pull effect of a lack of demand for labor because jobs are not happening. The businesses are, are not operating. Right. Um, on the other hand, there's also a supply constraint. All of a sudden, you've got all these kids home from school yeah. and parents needing to provide that care. And so let's fast forward a little bit over the subsequent six months as we get work our way toward historically the end of 2020. You see this very weird pattern start to emerge in the data, I, I saw a great graph for it. And of course we're on radio and podcast here. So it's, it, people are gonna have to picture this, but you see this sharp drop off among mm -hmm. parents um, uh, in, in labor force participation starting yeah. at, the, at the beginning of 2020 and then really hitting that trough around April. And when you look at men and women ages 25 to 54 with children under age five, it really hits that low point. And then this weird thing happens. For the men, employment begins to rebound and it has a mm -hmm. steady upward slope through the end of the year. For women, it flatlines. You don't see any return to the labor force in the subsequent half of the year. So 
what was happening in the latter half of 2020? Why were the men beginning to come back to work, but not so much the women? So that, again, it has a lot to do with the nature of the jobs that men and women have, but it also has to do with what's going on at home and the division of labor at home, particularly among households that have school-aged children, right? Um, so it shouldn't be a surprise that, you know, in many households, there's someone considered the primary breadwinner who earns the higher market salary and someone who's considered a secondary earner. And because there's this thing called the gender pay gap, <laughs> it, it's much more likely that the man in the house, if there is a man in the house, is the primary breadwinner, the primary earner, um, which means that when there's a need for a caregiver, a parent to stay at home and care for kids, the person most likely to be labeled, given that honor, primary caregiver is gonna be the woman, okay? Now, the exception to this, and you can see this in the data, is that labor force participation stayed up the highest, was um, maintained the most for black women. And you know what's different about black women from, for example, Asian women or Hispanic women, black women are much more likely to be single parents than other races. They're much more likely therefore to be the solitary earner in the household. And um, so even if those black women had children that were home from school, they really, a lot of them didn't have a choice but to keep going with their market paid work, keep going with their jobs. So um, we saw, I think that, you know, we saw some recovery from the trough as you described that happened in April, May. We saw some recovery both in women and in men in terms of employment um, relative to the trough. Um, but, um, and eventually when we got to late, last late in 2020 or early in 2021, um, female unemployment actually uh, fell back below overall male unemployment again. Okay, that's where we started before the pandemic. Um, female unemployment was lower than male unemployment. And, and after, at, at the worst part of the pandemic, you know, the roles reversed and female unemployment was much higher and female labor force participation much lower than men. Um, and, um, and that's why a lot of people were calling it the she session is because the she it was session. the she session. It doesn't really so, roll off the tongue, I'll admit. No, but. it's like you have to say recession, not recession. <laughs> so if you think about it as recession, then it's she session kind of makes more sense. But anyway, it was a term coined by, um, I think it was made up by Nicole Mason of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. I haven't heard anyone contradict me in that giving Nicole credit for that term, but um, it was an appropriate name because whether you looked on it, I mean, you could look at it just from a sheer numbers standpoint and what happened to the unemployment rate for women versus men. And that was a good label. You could look at it by race and you could see that in every race category, you know, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, female unemployment increased more than male unemployment, even within the racial categories, okay? Um, but what we saw happen was uh, female 
labor force status was much more um, erratic over the rest of the year because it really depended on arrangements that people, that women were able to maintain with their employers, first of all, like how much flexibility could their employers give them in the nature, given the nature of their work. Um, and that tended to fluctuate as the pandemic wore on. Like maybe an employer was first very flexible and say, okay, stay at home, try to get some work done at home if you can for the next few weeks. And then as it went on, employers get less patient with their um, employees that have kids that they're caring for at home. And it becomes harder for a working mom or a working dad who's got their kids around them at home to stay as engaged in their work, even if it's a job that you can do remotely, even if you're lucky enough to have that kind of job. So I think as the pandemic wore on, um, both the arrangements with employers and um, frankly, you know, the uncertainty of the situation with school reopenings, right? It was very like, you know, schools would say, school districts would say, we're gonna reopen halfway. We're gonna let people like send their kids a few days a week and stay at home the others. And then they would go back on that and say, no, we're not ready to have any kids back at all. And, you know, there was just too much uncertainty about, there was not a stable arrangement for children. Um, and so, um, that coupled with the uncertainty in, and sort of the fragility of relationships, employment, existing employment relationships that working parents have, especially moms, um, it just caused unemployment and the employment status of women to really, um, it kind of recovered for a while in the summer. And then when the fall came and kids were still not back in school, then it got worse again. So it was a little bit of a roller coaster ride for working mothers because of uncertainty at the workplace with their job status and uncertainty about um, where the kids were going to be. So that actually brings us pretty well to the situation we find ourselves in now in the spring of 2021. Because as you say, if you look at it from the standpoint of the unemployment rate, there's been some recovery that yeah. goes across the sexes. On the other hand, when you look at labor force participation, which, as you said earlier, is a measure of you have to want to be working, you still find a gap. This is something yeah. you wrote about for CNN, that, that this is sort of the million-dollar question for policy right now, or rather the two million women professionals question, yeah. because yeah. that's the number of women professionals that we're missing right now in terms of labor force participation. So the big question is why? Why have we not brought them back into the workforce? So I wanna, you write the Economist Mom blog and I wanna pick up on something that you wrote recently to start a, to try to get to the, to the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. You wrote that economists don't know the income and price elasticities that would tell us what kind of policies would draw more of the people who currently don't work in the market economy into the economy and into G GDP. So first, let's just get wonky for like yeah. 30 seconds here. Okay. This is this is the nerd corner on Beyond Politics. Let's talk about elasticities. Now it's an old joke among economists. Economists tell horrible jokes, by the way. So this is not going to be funny. That 
it, and and if you're if you're a student right now and you're taking econ, this is this is for you. So let's say your economist professor asks you a question and you're stumped. You don't know the answer. Your best move is to blurt out, well, it all depends on the relative elasticities. Now, I assure you, that's really funny for economists. For normal yeah. humans, uh, that's not funny at all. Can you just define what we're talking about here for a second? What, what are okay. elasticities in economics? Elasticities, okay. Elasticities are um, the responses, uh, how people respond to changes in prices or income levels right? Because we talk about income elasticities or price elasticities. And when an economist wants to figure out how a policy will affect the economy or economic behavior, um, it's often a theory, right? That if you lower a price, the demand for that good or service will go up. But the question, so that's a theoretical relationship, lower price, increase quantity demanded. That's called the law of demand. But how much will quantity demanded go up depends on the elasticity. It's how responsive, how sensitive are people or right. 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 How, so how, how much can they respond to a change in price? So yeah. people, people will joke sometimes like I wouldn't do that job for a million dollars. What you're right. saying in, in wonky economics terms is I am inelastic. I am not very responsive. You could pay me any amount of money and right. I will not become a roadkill removal technician. On exactly. the other hand, exactly. there are That's some things great. where it's like, yeah. you pay me another, you pay me another dollar an hour. All right, now, now I'm interested. So yeah. this kind of gets to this million dollar, two million <laughs> women professionals question, which is we talked before, and this is something you hit on really intelligently. I, I, I urge people to check out the Economist blog, uh, the Economist Mom blog, because it's not, it's not very wonky. It's actually very no. relatable, very understandable. Um, so you talk about, the, let's talk about the Republican argument here. Their argument is that we have sort of this demand pull problem, right? And it comes down to this elasticities issue. So what they're saying is, look, we're giving out super generous government benefits here for people who have been displaced by COVID from, from employment. And so they have kind of an income elasticity problem. And the solution is, well, if the trade-off for you is you can make a lot of money on unemployment at home or even less money or you know about the same amount by going to work, you're gonna choose the unemployment benefits. So what we'll do is we'll take away the unemployment benefits, then you have no choice and therefore Let's you'll go, go back, back to, work. to work. Problem solved. Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily totally wrong in terms right. of people's incentives, but in your in your blog, you point to a whole different explanatory structure here, which has much more to do with the supply side, which with the ability from the get-go to want to participate in the labor force. So what does that look like? What, what is that argument about what's inhibiting people from going back to work? Well, it's that they're making a choice that it's worth more to them to stay at home and do whatever they do at home than to take whatever their options are in terms of market work. And that choice isn't necessarily just a function of how much could they make in the market, um, you know, versus what the value is they place on, you know, what their, what the cost of 
childcare would be if they had to hire a babysitter, for example. So it's not as simple as, you know, for women, you know, a lot of, I think economists don't realize it's not as simple as making sure that women get offered a wage that's higher than the cost of babysitting in order to lure them back into the labor market. It's not just an incentive at the margin that matters. And for a lot of um, previously working moms that have chosen to stay at home during the pandemic and maybe quit their jobs or drastically pull back on their hours at their work, um, they've lived in this, in this arrangement for a long time now, for over a year now. And um, it just gets harder to go back to the way things were before, the longer things have been different like this. So, you know, this is no longer, it no longer feels like a temporary situation. And I know for a lot of mothers, there are a lot of women that choose to be stay-at-home mothers, even though they have advanced degrees, even though their opportunity wage is very high, even though they could easily hire even with the limited supply of quality childcare that's out there in, in the profession, they could easily afford to hire, you know, a very well-qualified nanny to take care of their kids so that they could go work as a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, in, uh, as an MBA. But there are a lot of those, a lot of those women choose to stay at home, have always chosen to stay at home, by the way. I have a cousin who's got an MD and has always been a stay-at-home mom. Um, They've chosen to stay at home because uh, what matters to them is the quality of the home environment for their children more than how much money they could earn if they left the home. And they feel like they can do the job honestly better than anyone they could hire could do the job, which I would agree with. I think it's always best, you know, I think a parent is always the best caregiver for a child, right? Even during the workday. So um, I just think that during this pandemic, I know there are a lot of women who were previously working who are not stay-at-home parents, but who haven't given not just a taste of what it's like to be a stay-at-home parent, but given like a whole year to settle into the role. They, they may not be easily drawn back by just dollars. Like you can't just throw a high salary figure at a mom who's really ended up enjoying having more time to work, combine work and their role as a parent at home. You can't just throw a high wage at them and expect them to go back. I think, I think they've lost, I honestly think the economy has lost a lot of, mothers from the market-based workforce because of choice, not so much because they, they're forced or encouraged to stay at home because of unemployment. It seems like part of the equation here is not just this kind of demand side, can I offer another dollar an hour? Can I offer yeah. another you know, workplace incentive? Part of it is the supply side. What does the situation, the, the home infrastructure look like that enables that trade-off, that enables that substitution of, yes, now I want to jump back in to the labor force. So that really gets us into a discussion of childcare. Now, mm -hmm. the number of childcare providers in December 2020 was 13% lower 
than a year before, according to Childcare Aware. What has your work and your research shown about the relationship between not just childcare availability, but high quality childcare availability and women's labor force participation? So, you know, I think the U.S., unlike a lot of European countries, has not really signaled, the government has not really signaled that caregiving is an honorable profession. Whether we're talking about caring for young people or old people, like especially old people, like elder care is going to be, um, you know, uh, we're going to have a huge shortage of elder care workers you know, well, we already do. And now I'm going forward because there aren't very many Americans who think that that's a great job because, you know, honestly, it's like a lot more difficult to care for an old person than to care for a cute baby, you know? So um, if you're going to be a caregiver, you'd rather work on the young end of the age distribution than the old, the old ones, you know, get bigger and heavier to lift around and stuff. And they're just not as pleasant. They're, they can talk back to you and, you know, anyway, so I don't know. You haven't met my kids. My kids talk back plenty. Well, yes, yes. Um, well, so old people just aren't as cute, I'll say. But, um, um, you know, I think that because, you know, in other countries, there's more support for children having families. You know, there's more, you know, support for the cost of the cost of raising children, which is, you know, childcare and college are two major expenses, costs of having kids, you know, at, at um, opposite ends of sort of childhood. And um, I think because our country doesn't really support, um, you know, give allowances for having children. Um, and because we do not subsidize childcare, um, or really, we don't subsidize the elder care industry either. Um, because it's not a subsidized industry, it doesn't encourage um, higher wages or greater consumption on the part, the greater, you know, uptake of those services on the part of the population. And so um, our country sort of always told our workers, you know, you work out the childcare thing on your own. You know, it's also like our health insurance doesn't cover, Medicare doesn't cover assisted living, the cost of long-term care, right? So it's like on either end of the age distribution, we don't, the government has said, you know what, when it comes to caring for your family members, you are on your own, okay? And the reason that's a problem is because it devalues. It's saying that um, caregiving is not worth the other, um, it isn't as valuable as the other things that our government subsidizes in spades retirement savings, employer-provided health insurance, right? Um, uh, uh, mortgage loans, owner-occupied housing, you know, like all the things that the government spends massive amounts of money on, you know, are of a sudden, are, are seemingly worth a lot more to our government than caregiving because the government doesn't invest a lot to help families with caregiving expenses or logistics, just caregiving logistics. And so workers in these industries in, that are, are in the market, um, are in the caregiving market sector, like either they work as child care providers or they work as elder care providers, they're so badly paid in our country. You know, they're, and, and, and um, 
you know, the, the, the public, the role of government in correcting, I view that as a huge market failure because the social value of caregiving is so much greater than what the private market pays, right? And- Absolutely. Right. It's, you know, actually, I, I may have to indulge it in, in a, uh, this is not going to be like a, like a radio rant, but okay. like a kind of a very sedate rant for a second. It is obviously the plural of anecdote is data. And I can tell you that some of the best professionals that I've encountered, look, I have relatively young kids. So I have encountered the caregiving economy in yeah. relatively recent terms. And some of the top professionals that I have worked with as part of that economy, have left that profession. Why? Because they get into their careers and it is so embarrassingly paid. One, one of the smartest teachers, preschool teachers I ever met said to me that she lies when people ask her what she does because Aww. people think that if you, if you care for preschoolers, if you educate preschoolers, they is, this is her words, not mine. They assume you're stupid. They assume that you are undereducated and uh, uh, less than capable. And it, it strikes me as such a deep insanity. You referred a second ago. Actually, I'm going to go somewhere with this. I'm mm -hmm. going to take us back to economics and kind of the macro problem we're dealing with as an economy through this. You referred to a market failure earlier. Mm -hmm. And as an economist, that's a very specific term of art that you're referring to there. It's not just sort of a societal failure, like, gosh, we have so many guns out there. That's a failure. You're referring to a very specific effect here, an externality, as it mm -hmm. were, where what we've said in this country is, you know what? We assume that your decision to have children or not to have children or to grow old or not grow old is your private business. It's your private decision. Therefore, we as a society have no role to subsidize it. Right? right, It doesn't have anything to do with us. But what you're saying is, no, that's wrong because the value of the care provided actually is a lot higher than the private value to you. If you exactly. get caregiving support as a family, sure, that's very valuable to you. But we collectively as a society get that. Now, where are we going with this? You wrote recently about President Biden's American jobs plan, which is essentially the, the infrastructure bill yeah. and the American families plan, which is the caregiving bill. You had some, some pluses and minuses as part of your take on it. Mm -hmm. Walk us through, if you don't mind, what you think that broader economic value is from a plan like the American families plan that would invest in the caregiving economy. What is the dividend that we as an American society and we as an American economy would expect to get from that if we have a lot more available, high quality caregiving? Well, if we have more avail, if we have more resources that the government makes available to cover the costs of caregiving, and that's whether it be caregiving that people choose to hire or caregiving that they choose to provide themselves, for, you know, for free rather than go to work, then um, it is going to provide, it's going to free up more um, opportunities for people to participate in the market economy. So, um, you know, I, th I, I think that the big part of the 
um, of the idea of subsidizing childcare that's so important from the, the economy standpoint is we have to remember that we have to, the economy starts with people. That's like the ultimate foundation of the, of the economy. And so worrying about, um, you know, other types of tax policy that are like, how high is the marginal tax rate on capital income? That just seems like tinkering around the edges compared to, are we gonna allow, are we gonna provide the resources um, that not only make it possible for a working mom to go back to work, but actually make it more likely that a working mom will choose to go back to work because the quality of the whole industry has improved because of government's investment. You know, I think that um, that kind of factor is orders of magnitude greater than the normal kinds of public policy issues that economists worry about. Are, are people missing in the political argument and the, the economic argument about something like the American Families Plan? Are people missing the math a little bit because there's a lot of focus on the cost side, right? It's, it's pretty easy well, as a yeah. round number, but what about the benefit side? What, what would the dividend look like if we could get closer to full employment Yeah, because so, we'd un- bring so many women into the workforce? Okay, so here's the challenge in terms of um, doing the math. Um, you know, economists rely on historical market data and measures of the economy, including components of GDP, to try to, and components of the workforce to figure out how a policy is likely to change these measures of the economy. Um, But a lot of the parts of our economy that we're talking about as essential to the foundation of the supply side of the economy are not yet in the economic data because they've been at home or they've been underpaid, right? They've been in sectors of the economy that are underpaid. We've never so, tried this out. Yeah, we've never, we've never valued the caregiving part of our economy at its full value, right? A lot of it is not in the market economy. That which is in the market economy is very underpaid, right? Even though consumers, the families that have to pay for market childcare will complain that it's expensive, that they can't afford it, right? So there's, there, there, there's reason why the caregiving economy hasn't really shown up as much as I think it would if government were to subsidize it and think of it as a public investment. And the caregiving economy could develop so much more. The market part of the caregiving economy, the market for childcare, the market for elder care could develop into something that's so much, um, you know, deeper, so much deeper of a market, higher quality of a market, a market that people want to work in and not just consume in. Um, that, but, but we don't see it now because we We've never been there. Our government has never invested in the caregiving part of our economy. So this is a challenge into to getting economists and policy advisors and the policy makers to understand that this is potentially huge for longer term growth in our economy. You know, medium into longer term, not for immediate demand side stimulus effects of policy on the economy, but for the 
like real, um, you know, working on growing the supply side of the economy, this is really important. But we don't see it in the data. We don't include it in economic models because it's not in the data. We don't have anything that we can use to estimate elasticities, okay, in, in the data. So um, we could only maybe learn from the experience of other countries that have invested more in families and childcare and preschool and college, you know, we could probably glean evidence about how much of a difference that makes for, for example, female labor force participation, right? Um, but we don't have US historical data that has run this experiment and has shown, you know, that we have empirical evidence on it. And of course, Americans are different. Americans are different from people in other countries. Culturally, we tend to be more, families tend to be more independent. Um, there aren't as many intergenerational families. So it's hard to translate some of the results that you might see from policy changes in other countries to the US because of the US being, you know, we got here for a reason that we were told that, you know, oh, you got to figure out the caregiving stuff on your own. We got here for a reason you know, like maybe a lot of Americans don't want government involved in their caregiving business, in their home, home family life business, right? Um, so I just think that economists, I, I, I think this is an issue that needs a lot more study. I, I wish that there were economists and other social scientists could be gathering more information about what matters to women and and men in terms of what makes them take a job? What makes them what makes them want to go to work versus stay at home? Like what is going on in their home life? What is going on with their demands for their time at home versus the opportunities for them in the marketplace? And why do they make the decision to do what they're doing? Which in a lot of cases cannot be explained by economic theory. Like you cannot explain why a woman wouldn't be working as a high wage lawyer you know, rather than staying at home and homeschooling your kids. It just doesn't make economic sense in a normal economic model, um, you know? And so we don't understand enough about how real people, especially mothers, <laughs> make decisions. Um, so it's hard to talk about, it's hard to talk about what a radical, you know, bold new policy agenda could mean for the level of, economic output in our society because we've never done it before. I, boy, you know that it just spurs so many thoughts for me. It, it, it certainly sounds to me, just to read that back for a second, that from the standpoint of an economist, there's every reason to believe. I mean, look, what leads to macroeconomic growth? Your, your labor, your supply of labor, your supply yeah. of capital, the marginal productivity of each of yeah. those you know, pools of, of, uh, of components of, of your economy and scientific and technical advance. So anything that you can do to make your labor force grow and by yeah. the way, more productive because let's not kid ourselves, women's educational attainment is now statistically higher. <laughs> yeah, than it is. So more women in the workforce, more educated workers in America, probably going to have an outsized bang for your buck in terms of the American economy. But what you're saying is we just don't have, because we've never done that here in America, we just don't, from an economist's standpoint, have enough reliable data to be able to say how big that effect 
would be. It would probably be substantial. We'd probably get a massive payoff by building up the caregiving economy in terms of women's labor force participation. It's just awfully hard to say how much that is. Let me kind of bring this full circle to your own personal experience. You're an economist. You're also mm -hmm. a mom. You're a woman. Yeah. And one of my mentors in economics when I was an undergrad, I mean, this is going way, way back, was a, another female economist who mm -hmm. focused a great deal on women's labor force participation and mm -hmm. childcare. Mm -hmm. But I get the sense that there are not enough of you <laughs> and that maybe one of the reasons that we have a little bit of a, a lack of, of data in this regard is there aren't enough economists focusing on these questions. Do you, is that your perception as well? And do you think that's changing? Well, our profession has been having a hard time um, attracting women into our profession. And that's because still the, the most famous economists, the economists that have the lead roles um, tend to be white male economists. I mean, we have, it's a, our profession is kind of embarrassingly not diverse, you know, embarrassingly dom dominated by white men. I mean, you have to remember Adam Smith is so, the so-called father of economics and Adam Smith, there's a wonderful book written by Katrine Marcel called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? And you should read it sometime. It's just really entertaining, but it's very factual. There's a lot of actual history in there. And do you know that Adam Smith, the answer to the question is Adam Smith's mother cooked his dinner because Adam Smith never married and um, never had children. Um, and um, basically took his mother's care of himself for granted, right? M mom was always going to take care of him. And then when mom died, it turned out Adam Smith um, brought in a female cousin of his to take care of him the rest of his life. I mean, you know, really pathetic. But anyway, this is the man who came up with the invisible hand and how great the marketplace works. Yeah, I mean, it, it really, it does strike me. And look, my economics training personally is a little stale at this point. It was an undergrad in my, my master's degree. But you're right. Most of the economists that, that I studied were men, white men at that. And uh, I just wonder, I just wonder to what degree we are really missing the boat by a lack of diversity, perspectives, and an understanding of a not very hidden side of what makes our economic world go round. It's certainly not hidden to all of the working families and especially working mothers out there who experience it every day. Well, Diane Lim, thank you very much for walking us through this. It's a really fascinating question. Like I said, it's sort of the um, million dollar, $2 trillion question facing <laughs> our economy and our society right now. So uh, keep up the great work. I hope everyone will check out the Economist Mom blog. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here.